Flash Notes Podcast, episode number 11. Audiobook summary on Influence, the Psychology of Persuasion, written by Robert Cialdini. Welcome to the Flash Notes Podcast, the podcast for busy professionals that need knowledge now. Brought to you by Flash Notes Book Summaries at getflashnotes.com, where you can get best selling business and self improvement book summaries that you can read or listen to in under 20 minutes. My name is Dean Bakari, your host here at the Flash Notes Podcast, where every week we work to bring you the big ideas and actionable insights from some of the best business and self improvement books out there to help you succeed in life and in business. So tune in, buckle up, and enjoy the ride as we dive into today's episode right here on the Flash Notes Podcast. Hey, it's Dean Bakari. Thanks so much for tuning in to this GetFlashNotes.com audio summary. And this audio summary is going to be on a book titled Influence, The Psychology of Persuasion, written by Dr. Robert B. Cialdini. Now, what are you going to learn here in this Flash Notes audio summary? Well, for starters, we just an overview here. We're going to talk about in this book the principles behind persuasion, the psychology behind why people say yes, and how you can actually apply these understandings, these principles within your own life, either personally or professionally. And it's going to break down the science of influence and persuasion here. So first thing we're going to talk about are the six universal principles of influence, what Dr. Cialdini calls the six weapons of influence and how to use them to become a skilled persuader and how you can defend yourself against those shady people that try to get you to buy something or say something or do something that isn't to your benefit. So you'll learn how to use them for yourself and how to defend yourself against con artists out there as well. We'll also talk about how to position your products, programs, or services for maximum impact in the marketplace, the sales room, or whatever it is that you do professionally in the office, maybe. And finally, we'll also talk about how to persuade prospects and people to buy your ideas, your products, your presentations, your whatever message that you might want to be persuading people with. And you'll learn how to get people to get buy-in into those ideas using science-backed psychological triggers that are found within every single one of us, that are embedded within us. So let's jump into the first big idea here, which is that our shortcuts in judgment, our shortcuts in judgment can be used against us. So sometimes the way animals behave can seem pretty simple. Right? Consider the mother turkey, for example, which normally cares very, very deeply for its chicks, right? but it tends to abandon them if they don't make that distinctive, that distinctive chirping sound. And conversely, even a replica of the turkey's arch nemesis, the polecat, will elicit tender care from the mother turkey as long as it chirps loudly enough. Why is that? Well, it's because the chirping sound acts as a trigger, a shortcut that allows the turkey to quickly, and in most cases, reliably identify its chicks, its children. And in the case of the replica polecat, the mother turkey, the mother turkey's shortcut seems kind of stupid, right? But we as humans, we aren't really any better than they are because we tend to use similar psychological shortcuts as well. 
Why? Well, because the world is a complex place where it's impossible for us to think about the minute details of every little decision that we have to make. Thus, we use quick shortcuts, and most of the time, they serve us pretty darn well. But just as scientists can trick a turkey into mothering a stuffed polecat, so-called compliance professionals, like certain salespeople, certain marketers, con artists, etc., etc., can fool us into using our shortcuts against our own interests. They usually do this to get us to comply with their own demands, for example, to buy a product or to do something. And commonly abused is the price indicates quality shortcut that these con artists sometimes use, where people usually assume that expensive items are going to be higher quality than cheap ones, right? And oftentimes this shortcut is partially accurate, right? But a shady salesperson might use this tactic to get us to buy stuff that might not be worth the money that we're shelling out for it. For example, like souvenir shops often sell unpopular gems or cheap gems that aren't worth anything by raising rather than lowering their prices. Now, because dealing with the complexities of life means having to rely on shortcuts, it's important that we identify and defend ourselves against the manipulators who might trick us into wrongly using those shortcuts. So otherwise, we'll end up behaving like those little turkeys that we just mentioned above. Next big idea here is that we need to understand and use the principle of reciprocity. Now, the rule of reciprocation or reciprocity states that we feel a duty to repay other people in kind for whatever it is that they have provided us with. Now, this tendency forms the foundation of all societies, all interactions, and all forms of human civilization from the beginning of time, because it allowed our ancestors to share resources, right, to barter. And they did it in knowledge and in trust that they would be reciprocated later on. Now, if someone does us a favor and we don't return it, we feel this psychological burden, right? You feel bad about it. If you don't do something back for somebody, and this is partially because as a society, we're disdainful of people who don't reciprocate favors, right? We label them as moochers or misers or whatever, and we fear being labeled that way as well, right? If somebody calls you a moocher, doesn't really feel too good, does it? (laughs) So in an effort to just do good, to contribute, to reciprocate, and to avoid being labeled as something that we're not, we put this principle of reciprocity into action within our own lives. Now, several experiments have also shown that people are so keen to rid themselves of this burden of debt that they'll perform much larger favors in return for small ones. For instance, when a researcher, let's call him Joe, bought test subjects a 10-cent Coke as an unbidden favor, right, just a whatever kind of thing, and then later on, and then later asked them to buy raffle tickets, on average, they reciprocated by purchasing 50 cents worth of tickets, right? This was twice the amount compared to if no Coke was provided by Joe first, right? If he had never paid that 10 cents, bought them the Coke, and initiated that principle of reciprocity, then 
they would not have, on average, that number of average individuals who reciprocated back wouldn't have been as higher, as high as it was. So obviously the possibility for abuse exists here, right? Because in the research situation, all the truly free choices were Joe's. He not only forced a debt onto the subjects by buying them a Coke, right? But also chose their method of reciprocation. So he bought them the Coke and then Later on, he came back to them and asked them if they wanted to buy raffle tickets. Now, the Krishna organization used this tactic to get to great effect. Okay, this is another example. When they gifted flowers to passersby on the street. Now, although they were generally annoyed when people came up to them, the individuals from the Krishna organization... When they approached these individuals, gave them the flowers, people generally were annoyed, but they often still made donations to the organization to satisfy their need to reciprocate based on having received that flower. Now, to fight back against attempts like this to take advantage of the rule of reciprocation, you can't reject all favors as you would rapidly become a cranky, just Mr. Scrooge type of person, right? If you rejected every time somebody gave you something or tried to gift you something. Instead, what you could do is identify offers for what they fundamentally really are, whether they're genuine favors or abusive manipulation tactics. And only then, once you've identified what they fundamentally are, whether they're actually genuine or inauthentic or whether they're sketchy and manipulative, then reciprocate in kind based on your judgment of where that person is coming from, whether they're authentic or fake. Next big idea here is that rejection then retreat is a devious tactic because it evokes reciprocation in the principle of contrast. Now, just as we have a desire to pay back favors, we also feel obliged to match concessions in negotiations. If a Boy Scout first asks you to buy a $5 raffle ticket, but then retreats to requesting that you only buy a $1 suite or raffle ticket, then you're likely to buy the sweets or the little piece of candy to match his concession, whether you're hungry or not. Now, this again is known as the rejection then retreat strategy, and it's astonishingly powerful in gaining people to take action or to comply to whatever behavior you want them to take. Now, in addition to our desire or need to reciprocate these concessions, it also evokes the contrast principle. That is, when two items are presented to us one after the other. Now, the difference of the second to the first is magnified, right? The the sweets or the candy in the Boy Scout example that I just gave you seems disproportionately cheap after the raffle ticket. First, he offers the expensive raffle ticket. Then after he says, gets the, gets the no from you, then he says, well, why don't you buy this little piece of candy here? <laughs> so the rejection then retreat strategy has even brought down powerful people like presidents like the infamous Watergate scandal, which I'm sure you've heard of. In 1972, the re-election of President Richard Nixon seemed inevitable, right? Everyone thought he was going to win. But somehow, a fella by the name of G. Gordon Liddy managed to convince the committee to re-elect the president that they should give him 
hundred and fifty thousand dollars to burglarize the offices of the Democratic National Committee. This was a preposterously risky undertaking, but Liddy used the rejection-then-retreat strategy. He started by suggesting a $1 million scheme involving kidnapping, mugging, and prostitutes. Although his later and second and third proposals were still just as scandalous and incredibly ill-conceived, the committee to re-elect the president felt that they had to give Liddy something, right? They said, we got to give him something for his concessions from his first scheme. Also, compared to the initial outrageous $1 million proposal, the $250,000 scheme involving just burglary and, you know, no longer sounded that bad to them. So the resulting scandal after the burglars were caught eventually forced Nixon to resign. Next big idea, when opportunities become scarce, we desire them more. A powerful influence in our decision-making is scarcity. Opportunities are seen as more valuable if their availability is limited, right? So this seems to be caused by the fact that people hate losing opportunities, which is like a well-known principle that's used by advertisers, marketers, for instance, limited time only, or last chance, or sale ends in two days. You know, you've, you've seen those advertisements, those marketing schemes. A study that Cialdini cites in the book showed that when participants were told of a limited time sale on meat, they bought three times more than if there was no time limit on that meat. Interestingly enough, this effect was compounded when people were told that only a select few knew about the sale, right? The scarcity of both the offer and the information itself made shoppers buy six times more meat than customers unaware of the time limit. Now, scarcity becomes a powerful, powerful influence under two conditions. There are two conditions here for this principle of scarcity. First, we tend to want something more if its availability has decreased recently rather than if it has been low all along. Right. This is why revolutions tend to happen when living conditions deteriorate sharply rather than when they're consistently low. Right. The sudden drop of its availability increases people's desire for something better, so they take action. Second, competition always sets our hearts racing. Right. Whether in auctions, in romances, or in real estate deals. The thought of losing something, the thought of losing something to a rival or a competitor oftentimes turns us from reluctant to ambitious, right? This is why, for example, real estate agents oftentimes mention to buyers that several other bidders are also interested in a given house. You know, whether that's true or not, they oftentimes will use that to trigger you to just take action, right? Because based on this principle of scarcity. Now, to counter the eagerness that arises from scarcity, we should always consider whether we want the item in question because of its use to us, its taste or its function, its utility, because we really need it or really, really want it, or merely because of an irrational wish to possess it. 
right? We need to make that distinction. We need to ask ourselves that question when we're in situations of scarcity. Because when scarcity is being used against us, the answer will often be the latter. Next big idea, banned items and information are seen as more desirable. People want stuff that isn't available. Now, there might be some truth to the old adage that people want what they cannot have. When Dade County in Florida declared laundry detergents containing phosphates to be illegal, not only did residents start smuggling and hoarding masses of the product, but they also started to see phosphate-based detergents as better than before. Or if you look at some Middle Eastern countries like Saudi Arabia, for instance, where alcohol is totally banned in the entire country, and what you'll find is that some people will smuggle alcohol into the country and they'll sell it at a premium price, sort of on the black market. So it's kind of spreads by word of mouth and they do it on the low and they'll sell it. And the person selling it will make a lot of money because the item, the alcohol in this case, is banned in the entire country, right? People can't get it or it's hard to come by. And if they do get it, it's a legal threat against them. They get in trouble. So this Romeo and Juliet sort of effect here stems from the fact that humans hate losing opportunities, right? Thus, when something is banned or forbidden, it's likely to seem all the more desirable. Parents often observe this rebellious situation in their kids. Any toy is going to become far more attractive if a child is expressly told not to play with it, right? Or... Adam and Eve. We've all heard that story. Don't eat the apple, right? We all know what happened there. This poses interesting problems in the adult world as well. So mostly, again, with regards to censorship, because banned information is also considered to be more valuable than freely available information. A study that Cialdini cites in the book showed that when college students were told a speech opposing co-ed dorms was to be banned, they became a lot more sympathetic to the argument of the speech without having heard a single word of it, right? They thought, "Ah, well, you know, and they started sympathizing with it. Similarly, courtroom research indicates that juries can also be affected by this quote-unquote censored information. And it's long been known that when juries know that an insurance company will pay the bill, they tend to award larger damages to the plaintiffs. Interestingly enough, they award even higher damages if they're expressly told by the judge to ignore the fact that the defendant has insurance. The quote-unquote forbidden information here seems more relevant to them and makes them overreact, just like a forbidden toy seems immensely desirable to any child. Next big idea. We're basically obsessed with being and appearing consistent with our words and our behavior, the actions that we take. So when people on a beach witnessed a staged theft of a radio from a neighboring towel, only 20% reacted. But if the owner of the towel first asked people to please watch my things, 95% of them became near vigilantes, right? Chasing down the thief and forcefully grabbing back the radio because their desire to be consistent with what they said they do 
trumped their own concern for their own personal well-being and safety, right? If you say you're going to watch something, somebody on the beach asks you to keep an eye on their stuff while they go to the bathroom. If somebody just comes in and jacks their stuff while you're watching it, because you told that individual that you're going to keep an eye on it, you're going to chase them down. You'll be more likely to chase them down because you gave them your word. You want to maintain your consistency with your words and your actions. Now, we even... Now, we even modify our self-image, our actions, which we'll talk about here in a second. What dictates consistency, though? The answer here is simple. Commitment. Our commitment. Research shows that once we commit to something with our words or our actions, we want to be consistent with it. And public commitment is the most powerful driver of all of them. A juror in a court of law, for example, is going to be very unlikely to change her opinion once she's openly, publicly in the courthouse or in the courtroom stated it. Now, we even modify our own self-image, again, to be consistent with our earlier actions. For instance, Chinese interrogators got American prisoners to collaborate after the Korean War by asking them to make very small concessions, like writing and signing innocuous statements, like America is not perfect, for instance. When these statements were read across the prison camp, the prisoner was often labeled a collaborator by his companions, his compatriots. Astonishingly enough, the prisoner then started to see himself as a collaborator as well, consequently becoming more helpful to the Chinese. He effectively adjusted his self-image to be consistent with what he'd done. He had already done. And having the commitment in writing was also an important element in this process because there's something inescapably powerful in written words signed by us when we write something down and when we sign it ourselves that's a very powerful process this widely known foot in the door technique takes advantage of how even small tiny little commitments affect our self-image and it's very popular with salesmen who frequently secure large purchases by getting customers to first make small commitments that change their self-image before a larger deal is offered. Next time you're in a sales situation, take notice of whether the salesperson, if he's a well-read salesperson, tries to get you to say yes a bunch of times before asking for the big sale. Next big idea. Making a choice to fight for something generates inner change. From tribes in Africa to college fraternities in America, when a new member is being inducted into a group or a tribe, initiation rituals commonly involve pain and verbal just warfare (laughs) and degradation. And sometimes these situations even result in death. Efforts to curb the brutal practice here is always met with just massive resistance. Why is that? Quite simply, The groups here know that if people go through a lot of trouble, a lot of pain, a lot of work to attain something, then they tend to value it a lot more once they finally get it. The effort needed makes members more committed to the group. But groups like college fraternities have also resisted efforts to transform their initiations into some form of mildly disgusting community service, like changing bedpans at hospitals. This is just basically because they want members to make 
the inner choice to participate in the degradation and not make excuses like, this was for the good of the community, which would allow them to use external justification for their behavior. Now, research has shown that these inner choices are more likely to produce lasting inner change compared to choices made due to external pressure. Compliance professionals try to get and generate these interchanges in us. For example, with the lowball trick, a car salesman might make such an astoundingly cheap offer on a car that we immediately decide to buy it. The dealer knows full well, though, that during the test drive, we'll then independently construct several other reasons to buy the car besides the price, like good mileage, nice color, comfy seats, goes fast, things like that. And at the last minute, the initial great offer is retracted because of a quote-unquote bank error and a more expensive price is given. Or maybe it's the car that they advertised on a commercial and it was the base price, which actually recently happened to me. I thought that it was going to be one price when I went to the dealership, but in all actuality, it was a heck of a lot more expensive than the advertised price. But guess what? I did exactly what we usually do. We end up buying the car. I ended up buying the car because of inner change. The reasons that we came up with during the test drive that we personally, inside of us, decided on based on our needs, our wants, our desires, drove us to purchase it, even though the initial hook, which was the great offer, the cheap price, wasn't in line with what got us through the door in the first place. Next big idea. When uncertain, we want to look for social proof. When we don't know about something, we want to look to others. The principle of social proof states that when we often determine what to do, we do it by looking at what other people are doing. And this tendency is used to manipulate us. For instance, if you look at TV shows, they use artificial laughter It's fake laughter to make jokes seem funnier. Or if you ever have been to like a talk show where recently I was at Craig Ferguson, they would hype us up, hype us up, hype us up and tell us to scream and clap as loud as possible whenever they they told us to basically and at certain key times or when the applause light went on. So these things are used, again, on places like TV shows. Artificial laughter, the applause sign, the hype-up factor, the prep before the show starts. They use these things to make jokes seem funnier. Or when church ushers, for instance, salt collection baskets with a few bills where they'll, they'll pad it before they go out there, before the service, to make it seem like everyone else is making donations. So social proof is super strong, especially when uncertainty is prevalent, when we don't know, which was unfortunately the case when a young woman, Kitty Genovese, as cited in the book, an influence, was stabbed to death outside her apartment building in New York City in 1964. Now, the shocking aspect here was that the attack lasted for over half an hour, with 38 people watching and listening from their apartments, but not A single person, no one, intervened or even bothered to call the police. 
This so-called bystander inaction was mostly basically due to two factors. First, when a lot of people are involved, it diminishes the personal responsibility felt by each participant. Secondly, an urban environment contains a lot of uncertainty, lots of unknown things and unknown people all over the place and around us that we're surrounded by. And when people are uncertain, they look to see what other people are doing. And in this Genevieve's case, people were trying to inconspicuously peep out of their windows, which seemed to indicate to other people that were doing the same thing that these forms of that this inaction was the right approach, the bystander approach to not do anything about something that was obviously, obviously wrong and a criminal act that was happening in front of them when it was something that they'd never been around before or haven't run into very often and don't know what to do. They look at one another. They look at each other. We do this as human beings to figure out what to do. Considering these facts, if you find yourself in an emergency, basically inside of this huge crowd, you should single out an individual from the group and direct a clear help request at him or her. This way, the person won't need to look for guidance from the others and will almost certainly help you, right? So if something crazy is going on, find somebody in the crowd, look at them, and make it very clear that you're requesting your help from them specifically. This way, they won't look around to other people to see what they need to do. So next big idea here is observing people similar to us can greatly, greatly influence our choices. So we'll often emulate other people in our choices, and it's a tendency that's strongest when the person observed is similar to us. I once heard a quote called, people that are like each other have a tendency to like each other. And so if you consider how susceptible teenagers are to the opinions and fashion choices of their peers, you'll know what I'm talking about here. And this is why marketers often use advertisements featuring mostly faked interviews of quote unquote regular people on the street who are endorsing whatever product it is that they're peddling. Now, we tend to think that these people are similar to us and that their endorsement is a strong indicator that the product is indeed a great product or whatever it is that they say it is. Now, our tendency to emulate other people also produces a pretty grim statistic. After a suicide is highly publicized in the media, the number of people who die in airplane and car crashes increases dramatically for the next week. At first glance, a rather baffling phenomenon, right? It seems that after reading about a suicide in the paper, some people resolve to take their own lives to emulate the victim. For several reasons, some decide to make their deaths seem accidental, and some of them will opt to do so while driving or, frighteningly enough, flying. Hence, there's an increase in unexplained crashes. That's pretty crazy stuff. Sadly, these are not people who would have committed suicides anyway. Research has also shown that every front page suicide story effectively kills 58 people who would have otherwise gone on living. Still want to watch the news? This is known as the Werther Effect, named after an 18th century book 
that sparked a wave of suicides across Europe. Apparently, an emulation of the protagonist. On average, this effect seems to be strongest for people similar to the person whose suicide was publicized. When young people read another youngster has committed suicide, they start plowing their cars off bridges and into rivers and lakes and so on and so forth, while older people react to news of suicides by other seniors, by other people that are their age. Pretty sad stuff, unfortunately enough. Next big idea, we comply with people we like, and it's easy for some people to make us like them. Now, as a rule, as a rule, we're usually more compliant toward people that we like. And again, while compliance professionals know which factors make us like a person, it allows them to take advantage of this. So one such factor is physical attractiveness. It produces this so-called halo effect. Now, the halo effect basically means this, that we tend to see attractive people as smart, that we tend to see them as kind and honest. And unfortunately enough, we even tend to vote for more attractive candidates in political elections. We're also suckers for flattery. And we tend to think And we tend to like people who are similar to ourselves in one way or another. And this is why salespeople frequently compliment us and claim some connection to us or some sort of a rapport-building tactic that they try to bring about in the interaction or conversation. And they try to connect to us or our background, right? That's a nice tie. Blue is my favorite too. Blah, 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 blah. I like those sunglasses. Nice watch. So... They try to do this and they use these tactics oftentimes. An especially powerful factor in liking someone is cooperating for some shared goal, right? That is being on the same team. Now, the infamous good cop, bad cop interrogation method employs this factor to a great, great extent. After a suspect, for instance, is verbally abused by the bad cop, the kind cop, the understanding, empathizing good cop, stands up for the suspect, seeming like a friend and a trusted confidant, and thus often eliciting a confession. Finally, the things we associate with people are very, very important for likability. Weathermen, for instance, have gotten death threats for (laughs) accurately predicting poor weather simply because they're associated with it, right? And on the other hand, if we hear about something while eating delicious food, right, we tend to associate the matter in question with the positive feelings elicited by the food, So this is a great way to condition yourself in a positive way, right? If something great happens, then, or if you are trying to learn a new habit, it's helpful to associate happy feelings to it, positive emotions to it, great things that you might want to think of when you're trying to build up a new habit for yourself or when you're trying to persuade somebody to do something. So now on the other end, while we are trying to, do this for ourselves in a positive light, we also need to remember that it's important to protect ourselves against the likability manipulation as well. Now, we need to ask ourselves here whether we have come to like someone or are seeing them in positive light unusually strongly and in an unusually short period of time. Because if that's the case, 
right? Then they might be using these triggers on you. It could be due to some form of manipulation. Next big idea. People are easily swayed by authority, but also by the mere symbols of authority, by the image of authority, whether it's true or whether it's not, whether it's authentic or inauthentic. Humans are trained from birth to obey proper authorities. We often do this even without thinking about it. As Stanley Milgram demonstrated in a study cited in Influence, he found that volunteers would administer potentially lethal electrical shocks to other people simply because they were told to do so by an authority figure. Or consider the nurse who got written instructions from a doctor to treat a person with an ache in his right ear administer the medicine in the right ear. She proceeded to put the drops in the patient's anus. And neither she nor the patient stopped to question how this would help his ear ache. Authority negates independent thinking. Unfortunately enough, (laughs) if we have no reliable evidence of another person's authority, We use simple symbols to estimate it. Titles, for example, are very, very powerful devices. Faced with someone like a professor, we not only become automatically more respectful and accepting of their opinions, but we also tend to see them as taller, more authoritative, more dominating. Clothes and props are also powerful authority symbols. For instance, in Milgram's experiment that I just mentioned, it was the authority figure's white lab coat and the authority figure's clipboard that convinced participants to torture their fellow test subjects. Con artists exploit the power of these symbols to their full extent by donning uniforms, by wearing suits, dressing up as cops, even priests' robes, if they need to do it. Authority figures, like judges, are often worth listening to. But how do we avoid people abusing our trust in them? Well, quite simply, we need to ask ourselves two questions when we're confronted by an authority figure. First, is this person really an authority or merely masquerading as an authority? Are they the real deal or are they faking it? Second, how honest can we expect this authority to be in this specific situation? In other words, do they have their own interests at heart? The closing notes here from Influence, the psychology of persuasion. The key takeaways first are that humans tend to use predictable shortcuts to deal with certain decision-making situations. And people like marketers, con artists, and salespeople take advantage of these pre-programmed conditioned responses. Now, since we can't stop using these shortcuts, we need to defend ourselves against manipulators who might abuse them and use them against us to do things that are not in our best interest. Next key takeaway Are we as easy to manipulate as animals? Well, our shortcuts and judgment can be used against us. Next, what mechanisms within us can be easily manipulated? Humans have an overpowering need to reciprocate favors. Next, rejection then retreat is a devious tactic because it evokes reciprocation in the principle of contrast. 
Next key takeaway is that when opportunities become scarce, we desire them more. Next, banned items and information are seen as a lot more desirable. Next key takeaway, we're nearly obsessed with being and appearing consistent with what we say and what we do. Next key takeaway, making a choice to fight for something generates inner change within us. Next key takeaway, when we're uncertain about something, we look for social proof. Next, what kind of people do we tend to comply with? Well, observing people similar to us can greatly influence our choices. Next key takeaway, we comply with people that we like, and it's easy for some people to make us like them. So be aware of whether they're doing it with genuine intent or inauthentic intent. And the final key takeaway is that people are easily swayed by authority, but also by the mere symbols of authority. Thanks for listening to this Flash Notes audio summary on Influence, the Psychology of Persuasion by Dr. Robert B. Cialdini, narrated by Dean Bakari at GetFlashNotes.com. If you enjoyed today's episode of the Flash Notes podcast, we would greatly appreciate it if you took just a minute or so to review our podcast in iTunes. And if you're interested in learning more about Flash Notes book summaries, come on over to getflashnotes.com. Again, that's getflashnotes.com. And you can sign up for a dollar and get access to business and self-improvement book summaries that you can read or listen to in under 20 minutes. Thanks again for listening. My name is Dean Bakari, and I will see you on the next episode right here on the Flash Notes podcast.